Hey guys, welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris and it is just me today. I'm going to be interviewing James Barkman. If you remember from our episode uh, with James Barkman, uh, last time we talked about you know some of his exploration that he's done and actually had him here in studio and it was it was me and him. We you know, It was one of my favorite episodes because we really kind of uh, got down to the nub of why exploration is important. And we talked about, you know, going from uh, you know, some of the avalanche stuff that he'd been on, some of the near-death experiences that he's had, some of the reasons why he explores. And even though it's a different type of exploration, it really resonated with me. And it was is a really, really impactful episode. It's called James Barkman, Perpetual Explorer, if you want to go back and listen to that one before continuing on with this one. And I've been trying to get James on the podcast many times over the last, it's been three years now, after talking to him, I realized it's been three years since he was on the podcast. And he's done all kinds of stuff. He's been in Idaho doing ranching. He's been out on fishing boats. He's been in Pakistan. He's been in Afghanistan. And now he's been to Ukraine. So I've watched this evolution of, and it turns out this is something that has been in, in, on his mind for a long time. But from an outsider's perspective, um, he, he's just been doing his thing. But it seems like it's been this slow shift over towards um, looking at looking at conflict. And he's got some of his projects, like one of the recent ones he did is uh, A Graveyard of Empires, which is a series documenting um, the beauty and resilience of the Afghan spirit amidst the struggle of an ongoing conflict zone, which is really, really interesting. And he's done mountain climbing in Pakistan. And uh, like I said, now he's in uh, he's in Ukraine or just got back from Ukraine and he's going back again as an independent journalist to help document uh, some of the struggles that those people are going through and trying to get to the bottom of what's happening, which if you're, if you're an American and you live in the West and you're, and you are watching the media and, you know, just having things fed to you online, it's really difficult to get uh, an impression of what's going on and why, because it seems like every single person has some sort of ax to grind with uh with what's going on over there so i wanted to bring james barkman on now especially uh to talk about this issue and some of the other things that he's been up to uh here's my interview with james barkman let's take a moment to hear from our sponsor petrol box petrol box is a monthly service made specifically for the automotive enthusiasts each month they carefully select items including tools detailing supplies apparel garage gear stickers and publications to be sent right to your doorstep it's a curated selection of the latest and greatest gear in the industry and there's actually two different levels of subscription to choose from you have the petrobox basic which costs less than 20 bucks a month and the petrobox premium which gets you even more gear for 39.95 a month be sure to check them out at mypetrolbox.com and use the code overcrest at checkout to get Six dollars off your first month. Hello, Mr. Barkman. <clears throat> hey, good to hear from you, man. How are you? Doing all right. I'm kind of getting over jet lag just about now. <laughs> How are you? I would just imagine that you're jet lagged all the time, just perpetually. <laughs> it's been that constant battle with jet lag for like the last two months. <laughs> so do you just like pound a bunch of melatonin and hoping it shapes you out or what? Uh, I don't know. I kind of just like try to stay up late, get over it as you normally would. And yeah. then crash throughout the day as I need to like the little power. Gas. <laughs> sure. I don't know. I, it's it's not so bad, but it just, some days it just kind of hits you all of a sudden. Yeah. But, you've been uh, kind of after it. I kind of like, I've been following your journeys and everywhere you've gone. And I was, 
I was kind of making like a little list, and then I, I realized I couldn't even keep up of all the places <laughs> you've been and the things you've done since we last talked. So I'm just going to, you know, what have you been up to, man, since, I mean, it's been a couple of years. Yeah. Uh, well, geez, I guess I'll just kind of work backwards. Um, I get recently, obviously I've been in Ukraine and we'll circle um, back to that one. I've certainly got some questions. Yeah, fair enough. So I've been there the last since, um, uh, that like kind of the end of April just came back for some work stuff and then I'll be heading back here shortly. Uh, we can circle back on that. <laughs> but um, Norway was right before that. It was kind of a trip that a few friends and I had planned for three years. So it was one of the first things that got canceled for us during COVID or sure. for me during COVID. Um, and then the next year got canceled. And then the third year, which was this past uh, this trip. How did you cope of- with you know, COVID because I mean that we talked before, I mean, God, it's almost been over three years then since we've talked on the wow. podcast anyway. So how does someone like you that just needs to experience, right? You gotta, it, I think it's just like the juice for you. How do you, how did you deal and cope right. with not being able to go anywhere? So for me, it was kind of both good and bad immediately. You know, when everything started getting locked down, everything I had been working towards, like all the business relationships, connections like the plans that i did have obviously went out the drain yeah but then me too it's uh, awful there was yeah like in the business sense that happened and then also there was just random stuff that came out of nowhere and it was almost one of my best years financially probably and just from you know things coming out of the woodworks i think people quickly realize how important you know you know media and advertising is in a time when everyone is just sitting at home on their phones or computers. Right. So there was massive resources, even though a, a lot of industries took a hit, there's massive resources being dumped into online marketing and all things, you know, visual, visually driven. Plus, so I regards, mean, right time, right place with, you know, as right. people are stuck inside, all they want to do is, you know, I think people live vicariously through what you're doing, but also a lot of people stepped out to do things. Because they could, you know, they could, yeah. they could hop in their car and go, you know, go camping. That's something you could still do. Definitely. Yeah. So then in like, aside from business sort of stuff, um, it was so fun. Honestly, <laughs> when everything got locked down, I flew to Idaho and I worked as a hand, as a ranch hand on my buddy's ranch, right when everyone was freaking out. I mean, I was in California where people, a lot of people were freaking out the most, I feel like. And so I kind of avoided all that hysteria, it seems like. And in Idaho during, you know, that like when all the toilet paper was getting <laughs> bought out, it was like that kind of right around when all that was happening. We were just in Idaho working on this ranch, like riding horses, branding, you know, doing ranch stuff like nothing ever happened. We'd go to bars, smoke and drink. And it was like nothing ever happened. It was crazy. You know so what then, I did is I just would just get in the shower. I didn't think there was no toilet paper. I mean, it's like, it's not the end of the world, guys. What are you doing? Nobody's going to die. Yeah, nobody's buying like water and first aid stuff and like actual survival, anything. It's toilet paper. Nobody wants a dirty butt. I don't understand what so was odd, going- man. I'm still just so intrigued by how that even happened in the first place. Yeah. yeah. It's just goes to show that a lot of people are just pretty spoon fed with how, you know, in terms of their life and, what they their schedule and what they expect. I think if you but, tell people, 
hey, this X, even if it's not, if you say X is gone, people are buying X, Yeah, they feel like they're missing out on something. It's, it's almost like you can't go to this place and do this mountain where you're like, well, yeah, you, yeah, I can. Yes, I can. I can do that. Just because you were told you couldn't do it. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> you're not wrong. Yeah, so, whole year, I kind of just did a lot of climbing, did a lot of traveling. Honestly, I feel like I wasn't home much at all because I was just traveling around the U.S. Um, doing some work stuff, some personal stuff. How did the and, Idaho thing work out? Did you, how did you end up as a as a ranch hand? Is that, have you done that before? No, but it was one of those things that I wanted to do my whole life. You know, you kind of have these things in the back of your brain. You're like, man, before I die, I want to do this or I want to do that. And one of those things was I want to work on a ranch as a hand. So I had a friend that is a rancher and farmer there. And then when everything started happening in the U.S. for COVID, he's like, bro, just come out here and work for us. Like, we need help. Nothing's really changing here. And so he bought me a ticket. And it was the day before flights started getting before flights got shut down. Like everything kind of went into lockdown mode, which is pretty serious in California. I feel like the, you know, the government is a little more on the liberal side, obviously. Right. (laughs) All that stuff more seriously. But yeah, I escaped us in time and then did that for a little over a month. So that was through a close friend that and a close friend that lived there. And I had been in Idaho off and on, but I had never really lived and worked there. So it was it was a great time. It's one of the highlights for sure of the year. <laughs> Did you uh, get what you wanted out of it? You know, you, it's a bucket list thing, or however you would want to call it for you. Was it what you wanted it to be, or your what to, was it what you expected it to be? I guess I should say. Um, it was good enough. <laughs> I think. Yeah. Like I had some, I had offers to do some more like cowboying type gigs, which they'll pay you five dollars, ten dollars a day. They give you a horse. They give you. A ranch, like a ranch house that cover all your food and then you just run fence lines and do you know boring monotonous cowboy stuff which is romantic in the telling but in reality it's really boring you barely making any money so that's kind of what i had in my mind i was like i want to do that at least once but um i mean i know that's kind of it's something that's romantic in the telling and it's just a big time commitment so I didn't necessarily commit to just living somewhere by myself, like looking after cows and fixing fence lines. Um, maybe I'll do that one day, but I'm a little too extroverted right now to to commit to that level. But that seems like Firewatch, like being in a Firewatch <laughs> yeah. tower. I've always wanted to do that, but I don't know if I would lose my mind or not. Right. It's kind of the same thing for me. It's like a cool idea. But when it comes down to it, are you willing to be by yourself? lost in your thoughts for months on end i want to try (laughs) i I think it's i would like to try it and see if i can do it you'd probably write a manifesto or something be more effective than me (laughs) when i'm by myself i don't get much done (laughs) i probably i yeah i don't know i don't know how my mind would react i'm not sure (laughs) yeah only one way to find out huh yeah for sure so what else has been going on so i guess um the last year I was doing a lot of alpine stuff. Uh, my part, my climbing partner and I hit a lot of the climbing objectives pretty hard because in 2020, everything we had planned to do was obviously canceled. Even though I did a, a little bit of climbing domestically, like in the Cascades, I didn't, you know, my plans got canceled for Alaska. I was going to climb Denali again. 
uh, I was going to go to the Andes maybe and, and uh, Afghanistan, all that got canceled. So in 2021, my client partner and one of my best friends, we planned like a, man, it was like a three month, four month long thing till it was all said and done. But we climbed in Alaska range on this mountain called Mount Huntington, which was maybe six year, a six year dream for me. So that was kind of a bigger climbing objective. Why Why was that a six year dream for you? When I was in Alaska years ago, when I was 21, I went up there on assignment with Chris Burkhardt, the guy that I used to work with. And we were flying around the Alaska range, you know, on a photo assignment. And I saw this mountain, this mountain called Mount Huntington. I was like, man, what is that thing? It was rising out of this layer of clouds. So all you could see was the top of it. Like a, it's like a very stunning and dramatic pyramid shaped summit. And it just looked unbelievable from, you know, from the air. We're kind of eye level with it. And um, just hearing the stories about it, the pilot was like, yeah, here's, you know, this mountain has killed a lot of people. Here's this ridge line where people get blown clear off the mountain. And it just seemed like the most ominous, you know, terrifyingly beautiful mountain I'd ever seen. And so I kind of made a promise to myself that I would come back and climb it one day. And that's what we did last year, finally, which was about six years later, or maybe even seven. I think it was six years. So we did that. We trained pretty extensively for it. And then right after that, we went to Pakistan for a month or a little more. It was like, I think it was, um, I think it was 40 days, actually, and climbed two different mountains or attempted to climb two different mountains in different parts of the Karakoram range. So that whole... uh, like climbing season from Alaska to Pakistan was for us on assignment for um, a client, uh, like an outdoor company that supported us and essentially um, sponsored us. Sure. So then before, like even before that, I mean, the training was pretty extensive. We spent time in the Cascades. We did some pretty big pushes on a vol- on volcanoes up there, like trained every day. What do you um, mean training? Is it just kind of just practice and how you guys are going to communicate with each other? And, and you know, is it physical training? What, what do you mean by training? It's mostly physical, you know, just like cardio specific muscle training for like, for example, the mountain in Alaska was uh, pretty technical, definitely like a world-class kind of mountain. And so there's a lot of I mean, the whole climb is technical. So there's, you know, technical ice, technical rock, technical snow. And so when you're climbing thousands of feet of like vertical ice or technical rock, like it's, it's a very, especially ice climbing, it's a very specific, like, um, muscle type movement. So just because you're using these axes where you're, you know, you're supporting your body basically with your forearms. So it's like a lot of specific training like that, a lot of technique training. Like we go to Colorado and train on ice, um, basically train as a team as well, which is less strength training. But like um, to to your, answer your question of more like um, just sort of teamwork and right. um, like efficiency and that sort of thing. So how far away uh, am I as a regular guy from being able to do this? <laughs> You know what I mean? Like I'm I mean, trying to understand the breadth of how far away and how hard this is, you know, how, how high, like if it's a hundred foot thing, how high am I going to be able to go before I fall off? I guess it's like that is like the, like the barometer for success for me. Um, I mean, like it just depends on like how <laughs> ups- 
somebody becomes with something like a lot of people can train their can work their whole life and not ever be able to do that you know and some people can train and be able to do that in a few months because they just quite literally become obsessed with it and they live eat breathe and sleep this thing or this sport or whatever so it's kind of hard to say but like most of the climbers that are were climbing like the mountain in alaska that we climbed for example are in their like 40s and 50s um there's some there's some 30 year olds um we are definitely like the youngest by far that um was there that year or even lately just because it takes like usually decades of experience to be able to climb something like that because there's so many different hazards there's so many different you know angles um it takes like more than just physical strength it kind of takes like this this like um like mountain intelligence that generally just comes from years of experience it's kind of hard to explain sure so so there's a lot of different dynamics involved with it that's one reason i really love alpinism as opposed to just ice climbing you know or rock climbing like that stuff bores me um and my friends as well because it's just one facet of climbing whereas alpinism it's uh it's all these different forms of climbing rock ice snow like at every type of climbing as well as um just the headspace is entirely different like you're thinking about all these objective hazards like you're run you know there's risk assessment there's kind of like the mental strength component of it so it's just it's just a whole different experience and then the mountains in in Pakistan were less technical but they were more they were much bigger like the one the one we climbed was 7000 meters and some change so that's like 23000 feet and however much um and that was less like ice and rock but it was more just massive mountain terrain where there's huge crevasses you know and then we we skied and i split boarded from summit so that the objective was to climb it and then ski down which is what we did so that was kind of a whole different animal and then the other mountain we tried in pakistan we had to turn back because of a um, gear failure my crampons were falling off and we're we're like 3000 feet up the side of this mountain. You know, if you make one mistake, you're just bouncing 3000 feet down and you're in pieces by the time you get to the bottom. So we turned back on that one, but we were trying to ski down from that one as well, but we didn't make it. How was, uh, you know, obviously there's some cultural differences between, you know, a white guy that's blonde going to Pakistan. I mean, you kind of stick out (laughs) a little bit. How was, how were you received there as an American? So the places that we went were very much like, um, I shouldn't say used to tourists, but like the only foreigners that are going there are climbers. Mm -hmm. So like some villages, like when we go through villages, trekking to these um, like mountains or base camps, the whole village would come out and gather around us and like touch my hair and like just kind of freak out like they obviously don't really see foreigners much and definitely not blonde white guys (laughs) right exactly that's what i was saying yeah so it's like a hundred people gathering around you just like looking at you and kind of ooing and eyeing like touching your face and stuff it's bizarre and then like a lot of do they speak a lick of english at all oh no not at all (laughs) and then just i mean culturally it's different and like religiously it's different i mean the women they can't look you in the eye, like they can't touch you. They can't really even be seen by you. It's so mm. bizarre. So it's just like a wild experience. But then there's a lot of areas that are definitely 
dangerous. Like Pakistan, you know, for decades has been harboring extremists. And like during the whole Afghan Afghanistan war, that was kind of the home base for the Afghanistan Taliban. And then Pakistan, like Pakistani Taliban was kind of created and then different Islamic state cells. Like Osama bin Laden was killed in an area that we drove through, you know, so it's like it's kind of there's definitely been a lot going on. I mean, a week ago or two now, there was this big suicide bombing in one of the country in one of the uh, cities in the south, which is like where we were. So there's definitely kind of stuff happening there. But in the valleys that we were they are they're so massive and remote that like there could be World War Three you know, the next valley over and nobody would ever know or find out or be affected. You know what I mean? Because these right. valleys are absolutely enormous, like hundreds and hundreds of 20,000 foot mountains that no one even knows the name of, much less climbed. So they're, they're not so, very concerned about the the water level in the reservoir in Nevada is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, they're all they're all like climate change is fake. <laughs> <laughs> but but I mean, they throughout history, like they have been very oppressed like the people that some of the guides that we were with because to get into pakistan you need to work with a tourism or guiding agency like we wanted to go by ourselves but it's you can't get a visa so so the agency through the pakistan government it's basically it's it's like a private agency but the pakistani government takes a huge cut out of what they do and then they're working very closely with the government yeah so the government like basically regulates all those sorts of things like the porters that we had to take on these expeditions the government regulates the day the day rate they get and all this different shit that's really annoying and expensive actually so there is a lot of government involvement and essentially they're just trying to monetize the tourism industry same like nepal i'm sure you've heard of how expensive everest is yep i mean the guides and the Sherpas are hardly getting a dime. It's all the government that's taking the money, like for the permits and the fees, and it's stupid. Yeah, I watched but, the I watched the the movie where the guy climbs all the mountains. What's it called? You probably know. Ah. Fourteen Peaks, I think. Yeah, really yeah. good. And what really struck me is how he was talking about how the Sherpas don't. Maybe he didn't say it this way, but my impression was that he was disappointed that the Sherpas never get the recognition that they deserve for dragging people off the mountains and basically carrying them up there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's 100 percent accurate for sure. And then so Pakistan, like the Karakoram Range has K2, which you've probably heard of. And that was one of the mountains that yes. um, Nimja did. So um, Kar- or the K2 is like a lot more challenging and dangerous than Everest. So it kind of has that whole dynamic, not necessarily with Sherpas, because the, the Sherpas is like an ethnic group in Nepal. Okay. But the Pakistan borders, I mean, there's so many of those guys have died. They're dragging rich dudes' asses up the mountain and never getting even mentioned or, you know, um, like rewarded. So it's a, it's a bizarre dynamic. And there's so many, like within the climbing world there's so many different types of climbing like those big mountain guys are just it's such a whole it's just a different animal like for example we came back from some of these mountains in pakistan we're staying at this hotel in skardu which is kind of the hub that you uh, like a lot of people um stay and head out from there was a huge team that came back from k2 like maybe 150 people there were six swiss climbing swiss clients that were climbers um they all got flown to base camp in a helicopter they they private jetted like a whole plane full of these badass sherpas from nepal 
because Sherpas are the best climbers in the world. So they private jetted them in. There's like 120, 150 people. There's three teams on the mountain of these Pakistani porters and Nepalese Sherpas. One team breaks trail, like just sets the boot pack and you know what I mean? So you don't have to wade through the snow. The other team sets the fixed lines. So all you have to do is like clip into these lines and you don't actually have to do real climbing. You're kind of just uh, jumaring up, which is when you use this device that kind of like grabs the rope and you can kind of pull yourself like handlebar yourself up. And then the third team takes all the gear and supplies and everything else up. So all these Swiss assholes have to do is follow up in the boot pack, like jug up the ropes and stand on the top. And they have this 150 person team and they're, they're each paying like $80,000 or more to do that. But they climb it and everyone's like, oh, look at these Swiss climbers. They're like, what a legend. But it's so dumb. So there's that. Why don't like they a- just like have a helicopter? Obviously, you can't fly a helicopter that high. But if they could, they'd I- probably just take the helicopter up there in the first place. That's a great point. <laughs> so <laughs> there's a lot of like ethics. Have you um, talked to that- these guys? Have you had any conversations with them? Oh, like, we didn't meet those guys, but I've talked I just to mean a lot in of general, them. like this type of climber. Yeah. So actually, that the um, fourteen peaks Netflix film, I never saw. I kind of hate that guy. Okay. <laughs> like he's a legendary climber, really strong climber, but it's like this weird, like narcissistic approach to climbing. Whereas there's so many more badass climbers that you'll never hear their name right. because they're doing it because they love it and not for the recognition. So. If you haven't already, there's this film called The Alpinist, um, and it's about this guy, Mark um, Andre Leclerc, or Mark Anthony Leclerc. I think it's Mark Andre. Yeah, Mark Andre Leclerc. Legendary alpinist, kind of like a like nameless, faceless sort of dude, but was doing the hardest stuff. I mean, just unbelievable feats of climbing. Um, so he like nobody knew about him until he died, and then they made a film about him. But in the climbing community, I mean... In the, I should say in the core climbing or alpine alpinist community, everyone knew him, but the world didn't know about him because he's not doing this to get recognition or fame, right? So sure. that's kind of like spectrum of of alpinism is there's these guys that are just like absolute animals and are doing it because that's all they want to do. And then there's these guys that are paying $100,000 and getting chopper to base camp. So that's like... I just wonder if like if you if you had a chance to sit in like a booth at a bar with one of these guys, if you could ex- if they would understand your experience versus their experience and why your experience is better. If you could somehow explain <laughs> it to them, just be like, hey, man, come with me. I'll show you the way if they would do it or if they would just be like ah, too hard or something. I don't know. I just it seems like they're paying to have I know what they're doing. Right. It's ego. Right. It's ego. But I'm wondering if it would be worth it saying, hey, man, you are paying $80,000 to have a worse experience. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know. It's just I, I wonder if you would be able to get through with it. I feel like someone like you, you know, with the way that you're able to to explain exploration and and why it matters if these people would get it or not or if they're just too far gone. <laughs> That's a great point. I mean, up until this trip to Pakistan this past summer. My friend and I, like one of the reasons we went to the Karakoram in the first place is because we wanted to climb K2 in the next three years. It was a big goal of ours. Like, granted, there's a lot of nerds and these rich guys that do it, but we wanted to do it like Alpine style and genuinely. But after coming into proximity with so many of these kind of like 
narcissistic type like big mountain guys we just had we just developed such a distaste for that part of climbing culture and we want nothing to do with it like i don't i have no desire to climb k2 ever in my life i mean i might develop that desire at some point but at this point we've just completely turned off and want to do mountains that are just beautiful and challenging not you know like chase these like the second highest mountain in the world sort of um, climbs. I think that so mentality with these dudes have exists outside of the climbing world. It's in the, absolutely. it's in like the vintage racing world too, right? It's like every, where the guy just gets, he, it's the exactly same thing. He buys yeah. the car. He has the mechanics yep. fix the car. Somebody else paints the car, builds the motor, puts it in a trailer, drives the car across the country, puts up a tent, opens up the trailer Gets the yeah. car ready. The dude flies in his jet, basically takes a town car to the track, <laughs> gets out of his car, puts his race suit on in an air-conditioned trailer, walks yeah. out of the trailer, gets into the car, drives it around the track, acts like he's the best racetrack driver in the entire world, gets out and, and leaves, and then the other guys fix the fucking car again. <laughs> Versus yeah. the guy at the bottom of the paddock that trailered his own car there, that worked on yep. it in his own shop and, and has his own bloody knuckles busted all over it from broken, yep. shitty wrenches made in China. And then he freaking goes out there, races it himself, comes back, does his own alignment, his own tires, rebuilds the motor, fixes it if it breaks, and pays for himself if it breaks, and then just puts it in the trailer, drives it home to his suburban home in, in Waukesha, Wisconsin. You know, yep. that, that's the contrast. That's those hobbies have those people you know it's and we all know who's more interesting to talk to yeah i mean we all know who they make movies of and write books about you know it's, it's right. like the guy's real but on the other hand i mean that being said like i do think that if you have a shit ton of money and this is where you want to spend it i mean that's cool it's better than blowing it at like some you know mm -hmm. bar and bake or something so like in that regards i think those guys like could be doing lamer things <laughs> with right. their money. So I guess it's kind of a, you know, there's a few ways to look at it, but it's, yeah. I mean, there, there are just a lot of those guys that are the worst dudes to talk to or be around. So, Hey, just look, look at it this way without all the super money into anything, whether it's cars, climbing, whatever, we wouldn't have all the cool gear because, <laughs> because nobody would develop it. Otherwise we wouldn't be able to go to the used store and, or eBay and buy cool shit because it wouldn't exist. <laughs> Yeah, you can't have too many dirt bags on the show for sure. <laughs> right, exactly. If it's all dirt bags, there's there's no no gear for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. So yeah. no K two for you. Uh, anything else going on, or do you want to? Should we talk about you know getting into Ukraine? Yeah, I mean, sure. I think like the the last few years of my life, I've just kind of been obsessed with this with the climbing and the the goals and like objectives that I've wanted to do. But one of the reasons it's kind of been pivoting is because my friend and partner, Alan just got married. <laughs> he got, <laughs> like he went, uh, he eloped. So um, he was out for this year. And then now I feel like I've been tapping into some of the things that I've wanted to do most of my life <clears throat> and talked about, been dreaming about, and so this whole Ukraine situation has kind of been the culmination of some of those dreams and like passions, you know? So a lot of my life is, is like kind of goes in seasons. Like I'll become obsessed with something and try to, you know, accomplish these goals or objectives. 
and then I'll almost um, like have compartmentalize it and pursue something else that was also a big passion of mine. So I feel like right now that's kind of what's going on. Like I would love to eventually like find the balance between like the commercial photo world, which is what pays the bills. I mean, that's why I came back to the U S from Ukraine is for a project um, just, you know, have to pay the bills. And then yep. if I could like, kind of dip my toes into the commercial photo world to keep the ball rolling and then um half of my life would be almost like in the um photojournalism like correspondent kind of conflict journalism sort of world that would be the dream for what me. inspired that for you i mean that that didn't just happen in the last three months i'm imagining so how did you decide that you wanted to you know document things in that way so it kind of is a theme or an interest for most of my life. I think I would have to credit perhaps um, some of like our family's friends and some of the experiences that I had through my family. My dad has always been very involved in like refugees and um, kind of helping them get their feet planted in the U.S., finding them housing, um, like just essentially like you know, however he can help get people financially stable um, that are coming from like these other nations. So when I was younger, I went, I was on a trip with my family to um, Thailand and we went to the Thai Burma border, which is like 140,000 at the time. I think it's, it's way more now, 140,000 people that are fleeing um, just genocide in Burma. And it was pretty eye-opening. Like, as a 12-year-old kid, you're hanging out with all these people that are, like, blown to bits by mines. Like, just literally been living in, like, a genocidal country and just escaping for their lives. So seeing that and, like, being aware of that from a young age, I think it's – and other, um, like, other nationalities or other refugees that are dealing with, like, persecution or, you know, just war – it's hard to turn a blind eye, I think. And then we had a number of family friends. I would argue that it's that, easy to turn a blind eye if you haven't seen it. You know what I mean? You, like for most Americans, right, they're able to just ignore it. But once you see it, you can't unsee it, I think. Exactly. And and that's exactly my point. Like once you're aware of it, it's you you it's hard to just forget about it. Right. So we had family friends that escaped the Khmer um uh the Khmer Rouge in um or the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. And uh, it like they've come to like Thanksgiving, Christmas, that sort of thing. Like they've always been around my family and they just have the most unbelievable stories of escaping genocide, like their family slaughtered, just unreal. Right. So all that to say that I think being in proximity to these people um, always like I, I guess I kind of always cared deeply about it as a kid, just knowing what's going on elsewhere in the world. And then most of my 20s, I've always had a dream to work more so like alongside humanitarian orgs or in conflict zones or essentially just like working towards things that are helping people in war-torn countries or like conflict zones um, or those sorts of situations. So, I mean, that's not the only passion I've had in life, obviously. Like I've had like um, some of these other creative passions, like climbing passions. So life is kind of hard balancing everything out. But I've always, I've like for a decade at least, I've been following a lot of conflicts really closely, like 
building a network of people that are um, working in these areas, whether photojournalists, like aid people, um, like medical people, NGO people. And then since 2017, I've been following the Russia-Ukraine conflict pretty closely. That's and one then, thing people don't understand is this isn't something that just happened. This has been yeah. ongoing for quite some time. And and anyone in my life, like all my friends that know me, have been hearing me talk about this for 10 years at least, you know? Um, just like my interest in it, my desire to do it. I mean, is there anything was, in particular that kind of drove that interest in this conflict? Because there's lots of conflicts around the world. But what about what was it about right. this one that kind of intrigued you the most or or piqued your interest? Um, I don't know. I think like besides the obvious, re- like besides the obvious that Ukrainian people and Russian people are in terms of all the conflicts happening around the world, they're like the most relatable, you know, the most westernized, which sure. is kind of like sad to say, but it's true. Um, and I think like, it just feels, it feels like the most relatable. And it's not that I've been, it's not that I've been unaware of other conflicts. Like I have friends in Burma and like friends all over the world in areas that are just like actually getting, you know, like people, like it's a actual genocide. And I would, and I want to work in those areas too, but maybe what sparked, um, this interest to answer your question is just like seeing the people involved and like meeting Ukrainians and hearing them talk about it. And just, I'm like, wow, we're, we're the same. This is crazy. Like what if this happened in the U S it feel the same, you know? And that's, that's really been the case with being over there. It's like everyone I'm meeting, it's like, it feels like if you were in LA and and a war happened like that, it feels that similar culturally with of course the language barrier. Right. Um, but like aside from the language barrier, it's everyone's the same. Like they're educated, they're wealthy, like the chicks are super hot, the dudes are super cool. <laughs> yeah. You know, like it's so bizarre. It just feels like it feels like if it happened in the US, you know. So all my information for this war obviously comes from the media and a little bit of, you know, going on Reddit and in initially and trying to like understand what's happening. And all of the news seems to be filtered through a lens with an agenda that I, that I don't really understand. And I don't know, can you give me your perspective since you've been following this for so long about why this is happening? I hope I'm not putting you on the spot here, but I'm just trying to understand because I just, I see it as like, okay, I go as an outsider looking, looking at this thing. Obviously I feel for the Ukrainian people, but I also feel like, I'm being just like totally like one half of it. I'm not getting the whole story. Like this can't possibly be this one-sided. Is it this one-sided? Is like I don't understand why this is happening. Yeah. So, I mean, everyone in my like sphere of influence has been asking me the same thing. They're like, "What's actually going on?" Yeah, because nobody like, nobody knows. Nobody trusts the media and what we're being told. We yeah. just don't under we don't we don't even have a way to know. You think with the internet and everything being so yeah. information being available so readily that we would yeah. be able to know, but we can't. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, th- that's entirely correct. So basically there's the spectrum of like right versus left. The left is kind of just throwing their money at this like avoiding the com- the topic of conversation that Ukraine has corruption and like um that this is like completely one-sided then there's the right that the alt right is denying that that war is even happening i mean i can't tell you how many people i've talked to that 
don't even believe a single person has died in this conflict. Like they actually believe that it's like Russian propaganda and it's bizarre. Like, so there's all this different information, like disinformation, like um, kind of like media coming from a strong angle, like political angle. It's, I mean, I get it. So basically, I mean, I've been following a lot of uh, alternative, I should say like, sources of news i think like with the age of the internet you'd think that it would be easy with all this information it'd be easier to like get more sort of independent news outlets or or news from independent sources but it's harder than ever because big tech kind of has this monopoly on everything yeah you type something into google they're only feeding you what they want you to see is as much as they want to be like oh no it's all traffic driven is no it's not yeah i don't have access to what I want yep. to search for. Exactly. And like all the independent news guys, like on like grassroots sort of dudes on um, Instagram, Twitter are just getting either deleted shadow banned. Like they'll post something. It'll just get removed. It's bizarre. And it's just, it's just big tech. Like, you know, like trying to grow their, um, they're, they're just thinking about themselves and how they can become more profitable. And they don't care about these issues at all, even though they claim you know, to be, even though they claim to care about it, it's wild. So there's a lot of different sources of information coming. From, there's a lot of information coming from different sources, like, like Telegram, like these apps called Discord, like um, Live Journal, like all these like online platforms and then apps. So, for example, in Ukraine, every like Ukrainians and and anyone in the world that's tapped into this are following these Telegram channels. Have you ever heard of this app? It's like I've a, heard of it, and that's. That's it. So yeah. I don't really know what yeah. it is. So basically, Telegram is like an encrypted um, sort of uh, like uh, app for communication. Like you can call, you can text. It's like wild encryption. It was started by this guy, Pavel. who's like an insane tech billionaire sort of Russian dude. So he made like a basically Russia's version of Facebook, um, like very successful, um, like coder sort of software dude russia like forced him to um give up like the private data of people and he refused they took that social media platform him platform from him they took his house they took everything he owned and basically like he just left russia lost everything he ever had Hmm. and he started telegram and he's he started it um over like just before the um crimea i believe situation so he's been building it around like, um, you know, in or in uh, how should I say, like in uh, retaliation for just the massive uh, like <clears throat> uh, just Russia's like tech kind of censorship machine. Yeah, right. So Telegram has become enormous. Like there's all these you can text, you can call people, you can send um, like uncompressed files. And then there's all these channels that people follow that are just like a fire hose of information coming from Russia and Ukraine. So like everyone in Ukraine is tapped into these channels. When something happens in the East, they all see it because they're following these channels mm-hmm. and there's no censorship. There's no like big tech sort of overreach. It's just, here's what's happening and like here and it's happening right now. So there's, there's a lot of other apps like that, that <clears throat> at the same time, are- you have to wonder if there's some Russian dude on there saying this is happening, you know, and then it's not. So you have to probably have to be pretty careful and discerning with how you digest that information. Definitely. But, but like, it's more so been 
helpful in the sense of like, like, you know, some like Kharkiv, the scenario in the East will get bombed to shit and Russia will be like, oh, there's no war. Like we didn't do that. But everyone is like, no, we see this. We see the like artillery strikes. We've seen on Telegram, like you're full of shit. So in that way, like combating all this Russian propaganda that's coming from state media, you know, and like people in Ukraine are susceptible to Russian propaganda. That's why there's separatists. That's why, you know, people are are pro-Russia, even though they're Ukrainian, because they just watch Russian TV. So this one of our guys, like a fixer that we work with, which is basically a translator and like um, escort um, in journalistic terms. I asked him why, you know, Ukrainians are pro-Russia and why some of them aren't. And he just said, it depends what channel you watch. That's all it comes down to. It's like not much different than in the U.S. I was right? going to say I mean, that's just like here. It's just like here. I mean, I can't tell you how many people we've talked to in Ukraine that have family in Russia, because a ton of people come from Russia, like all of Ukraine speaks Russian um, in the east. They speak entirely Russian. And then in the west, they speak more Ukrainian, less Russian. But everyone has family there and everyone we talk to that has family there. They their own fathers, their own mothers, their own siblings don't believe them when they talk about what's happening, like actually don't believe them and say, don't call back like we don't believe you. You're brainwashed by Ukrainian propaganda. And they're they're in these cities that are getting like steamrolled by tanks and like, you know, like missile strikes and artillery. I mean, I was in a lot of areas that were recently liberated. And it's just it's people that have never talked to the press before. They're just they're coming out of their You know, they're sweeping up their destroyed homes like everything they ever had is just destroyed. And they're telling us these stories of what the Russians did. And then and meanwhile, like Russian propaganda is denying it. And a lot of the world is believing it. It's bizarre. So like the like it's the violence and destruction and like the, you know, just the amount of death is all real and worse than what you're seeing on the Internet. Like it's wild. There's an unbelievable amount of people dying in the east against the front lines, like Ukrainians and Russians every day. But then the rest of the country is like like what people don't understand about war nowadays is that there's a front line and on the front line it's hell but the rest of the country isn't necessarily getting attacked like it is on the front line so there's random missile strikes and like random artillery strikes throughout the entire country like air raid sirens go off every day in all these cities and all these uh like metropolis areas but a lot of people are just living their life because they have no choice. So the people that have left, which is 6.5 million at this point, all those people were either really wealthy or like had connections somewhere else that they could afford to leave. The people that don't leave are either too poor, like they can't afford to leave, or they're just too stubborn and nationalistic. And they're like, we're going to stay here even if we die here. Right. Because uh, there's like a level of nationalism in Ukraine that the world doesn't understand. Like, all these people that are my age, like we talk, hang out, you know, they have cool tattoos, they're barbers, they're skateboarders, like they're just as like westernized, if you will, as me. And they're quitting everything and going to the front lines and picking up arms, joining the army and getting pulverized. It's like very much a real thing. It's interesting so, because I've seen like polls of, you know, you, the polls are whatever they are. Right. But you look at the polls yeah. in the United States of like, would you defend your country? And the majority of people say no. 
it, oh, it's very unpopular to be a nationalist these days. You know, it's it's, it's like, not that you should necessarily be a nationalist. It's not always healthy to just be a blind nationalist, right? That, that's not always a healthy political way to think either. Right, but, but it's but it's unhealthy to be national, or it's unpopular to be nationalistic. Like I yes. think being nationalist is one thing, but loving your country is also very unpopular in the U.S. It was, that's you know? that's very true. It's very true. I, so, I, I have a feeling that sentiment might change if something like Ukraine happened here. I have a, oh, that, I have a feeling it would change pretty quickly. Definitely. Yeah. People would draw sides. So if I, I mean, was in Ukraine and I went up to someone and said, why is this happening here? What would the Ukrainian people say is the reason for what's going on? They would say it's Russian aggression and um, it's just Russia. Like this isn't about land grabbing. It's about like Russia as an aggressor. I mean, and that goes back to 14th century. So I'm like basically what I believe about it. And um, it's important to note that I don't have political like my political ties or my political loyalties don't necessarily reside on the right or left. I mean, I I hate the right and left. I like know a lot of people in like, you know, higher levels of media and government and. I think they're all equally corrupt. <clears throat> so that being said, it's not like I'm defending like a political view here, but I really do believe. And because I've like been tracking with this conflict since 2017 and even kind of before that, and then like um, reading about history and like, the, you know, post World War One, World War Two, like what Russia has done in the past. I mean, this is nothing new for them. Like you go to Poland and everyone's like, oh, this this happened to us like back in the day, right? Like Russia has always been an aggressor. Didn't like they Russia just sit across the river and watch the Polish people get destroyed after the Russians said that they would help them when the Nazis came and they did nothing. They just watched the entire city, just country get mowed down. The Polish people do not like the Russians very much as far as I'm aware. They hate them. Yeah. I mean, there's been millions of people that have died in Poland and Russia, like over the last few centuries from Russia. It's, unbelievable it's like it's like unbelievable amounts of numbers so basically like i talked to a polish guy he's like he's like you know this back in the day in like post-world war ii or post-world war one people said like oh this russia will invade us we're modern civilization like we're westernized we have newspapers like the world will hear about this and stop it like it would never happen and then you know the red army just kind of steamrolled through a lot of areas in east europe and killed hundreds of thousands of people and this conflict everyone said oh it won't happen like we have the internet we're modern we're civilized we're westernized and look what's happening so there's there's like a lot of um you know speculation as to why this is happening to kind of circle back on the reasoning but my analysis is that russia is about like imposing their beliefs or their culture on ukraine and it's not so much that like you like it's not that Ukraine doesn't have blood on their hands. Like there's a lot of corruption there. But like you can't talk about Ukrainian corruption and not talk about Russian corruption or even like U.S. corruption. Like I think I think Russia is like corrupt to the core. I think U.S. is corrupt to the core in the high level, you know, government and political um, positions. And then Ukraine is definitely corrupt. But not even close to like what the level of corruption happening in Russia and U.S. So when people say that you that Ukraine had it coming because they've been corrupt, like I don't even see the logic for that reasoning because it doesn't even hold a candle to some of the other superpowers. But basically, like Zelensky, when he became 
president, he approached the whole border conflict um, with like more of a dialogue sort of pers- like um, like he, he approached it like trying to take a dialogue sort of um, position where he should have been where the military wanted him to strengthen and bolster the military, but he wanted to be diplomatic. So Russia, I think, saw that as uh, like an opportunity to where the military wasn't as strengthened as it would be maybe in another under another leader. Um, and also, I think some of the other things that happened in the U.S., like um, like pulling out of Afghanistan and like this administration isn't technically like a strong military leader, I believe. And a lot of this is coming down from it. So it's like that's kind of helping develop my opinion. But I think there's like it's not just like they invaded, not just because Ukraine's military was weak, but also because I think there's an opportunity like globally where they um, didn't think that or they thought that they wanted, you know, they could get away with it. So I think there's quite a few reasons. But I mean, like this, the the sentiment of like Russia as like a superior ethnic group goes back so far and is very deeply ingrained in Ukrainian culture, like even to the point of where, you know, I'm talking to people that are Ukrainian and have been in these towns that are just have gotten absolutely flattened. So they're not like pro-Russia by any means, but they hate the Ukrainian language. They think like Ukrainians are weak or they think Ukrainian culture is weak. They think Russia is like more of a superior, like sophisticated, um, like more intelligent sort of culture and people group so it's like that's been like a like part of russia's propaganda for you know as long as they've been doing this thing is this something that the west screwed up with the fall of the berlin wall and the the collapse of communism did we did we is it our fault that we left that vacuum there afterward for corruption to just because all this corruption now if you follow the money and everything else kind of comes back into when the Soviet Union collapsed, it just turned into corruption central, even worse. Is there something we could have done? I mean, is it partly our fault for not trying to, to police that a little bit better or, you know, obviously we had the cold war, we were probably trying to do something, but it just seems like everything seems to, to, to fountain out of there, at least from like my history perspective of Soviet Union today, I trace Uh it back to world war two, but you're saying it's much more than that. Oh, it goes back to 14th century. Absolutely. Yeah, I think, I mean, if you look at what Russia has done, like, be, well before World War One, it's, it's like, astounding. And so I'm, I'm very convinced that this is, like, um, like, a Russian, like, cultural dynamic where they need to be the aggressor and they need to be, like, the superior ethnic race. I mean, they're incredibly racist against everyone. Like, I know, in people, Russia, people think the United un- States is racist. Oh, man. Oh, my God. It's unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, like, they're racist against Ukrainians, much less, like, people that are actually different races, like, in the North. I mean, if you, like, the thing is, no one, people don't know shit about Russia. They, like, think they know. But when you look at what Russia has done to their own people, like, the people in the North, the ethnic minorities, it it puts, like, every other genocide to shame, almost. It puts, like, the U.S. Native American thing to shame. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And it's still the case. Like, talk to a Russian. I mean, they'll tell you all about it. I've met a zillion Russians now, and they've all been trying to escape Russia for, you know, 20 years ago because it's been so oppressive and, um, like, uh, just bizarre. So 
I'm very convinced that this is like, yes, maybe the U.S. could have done things better. They always can. Like, I'm not exactly I don't think the U.S. has the moral high ground, but I don't think that like I don't think this is as a result of of what the U.S. or other superpowers have done. I think it just goes back like so far and is just such a part of like like being over there and and being around Russians, being around Ukrainians, like meeting Russians, talking to people. There's so many nonverbal things that like I can't quite put language to, but it just makes so much sense that like as to how like Russian culture believes they're superior and has always been like a violent oppressor. And I mean, all the countries around there say the same, like the Poles have dealt with this, Ukrainian Ukrainians have dealt with it, like surrounding countries have dealt with it. And so they're not confused as to what's happening. They're just, they all believe, I mean. There has to be some sort of, uh, if you look, I've read, you know, much of the Gulag Archipelago by Solzhenitsyn. And in this, in this book, he talks quite a bit about how many of his friends were never not okay with what was going on, but there was nothing you could do. And by the time that you, he just talks about if what if we would have done something before they were at our doorstep, if we just would have done something, if we just would have screamed or, or, or raised a, a, a hammer to, to defend ourselves, if we just would have done something, all of yeah. this could have been avoided. But nobody does anything because yeah. they, everybody always thinks it's human nature that it's not going to happen to them. And then it does, right. and it's too late, and you get sent to the gulag. And then it's, yeah. and it's the fear. So it's like it's it's almost like the Russian people are a, a product of their environment. You know, it's Absolutely. like they've seen what happens if you, if you try to rebel, right? They've seen, you know, millions of people starve to death and Ukraine millions, like the famine of Ukraine because of what Russia did was just hideous. Millions of people died. Yeah. Astounding. And, yeah. and, and it's just maybe, maybe the way that the Russian people are. And I, I hate to say they all are the same way, but Many of them probably would love to not be dealing with any of this, but what are they supposed to say? What are they supposed right. to do? This, I mean, it's it, not like America where you can say these things. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, in Russia, if you call this a war and not a special operation, you can get 15 years in the slammer and it's happening. You know what I mean? Like people Jesus. disappear, people die. Like Russia doesn't care about their people. It's not like democratic, like in the U.S. They don't care if people are starving and dying. I mean, you just have to look at history to see that. I mean, I think a lot of people like a lot of Ukrainians like believe that every Russian um, is behind this and like they're all supporting it and they have right to believe that. But I think that it's what you're saying, you know, to agree with you that they don't they can't do anything like they're already struggling. They can't afford to get thrown in jail. They can't afford to get, you know, like, um, you know, their businesses taken from them. They can't do anything. So that's like, I think, a huge dynamic. I mean, I was just speaking to a guy that lived in Russia for 15 years um, a couple of days ago. And he's like, he's uh, he's a, like a filmmaker. I mean, he's been around the world. He's worked with all these, you know, production houses and like basically he's very westernized and connected to the world. But it took him like a decade to leave Russia because it's so oppressive and it's they make it so difficult to get out of there. So I, I tend to think that like people are just too scared to do anything because they can't afford to rise up. And also, I mean, there are a lot of things happening in Russia, like a lot of there's like a lot of um, like a lot of recruiting centers have been getting burned down, like people rolling around with Molotov cocktails, mm-hmm. like burning 
Russian uh, military centers down. But the punishments are so severe and like Russia is so powerful with their military and police force that people can't really do much because they've been living, you know, in such poverty outside of the metropolis areas. And even in the metropolis areas, if they're not brainwashed, they can't they just don't have anything they can do. So that's kind of my perspective on it. And um, let me yeah, read this. Let me read this one paragraph from this book. It's from the Gulag Archipelago by by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, which if you want like a glimpse into what it was like during uh-huh. during that time, it's for everybody that's listening. It's a fantastic book. It's not a happy book, but it, yeah. but it's fantastic. And it says and how we burned in the camps later thinking what would things have been like if every security operative when he went out at night to make an arrest had been uncertain whether he would return alive and had to say goodbye to his family. Or if during periods of mass arrest, as for people in Leningrad, when they arrested a quarter of the entire city, people had not simply sat there in their lairs, paling with terror at every bang of the downstairs door and at every step on the staircase, but had understood that they had nothing left to lose and had boldly set up in the downstairs hall an ambush of half a dozen people with axes, hammers, pokers, or whatever else was at hand. The organs would quickly have suffered a shortage of officers and transport, and notwithstanding all of Stalin's thirst, the cursed machine would have ground to a halt if... If we didn't love freedom enough, and even more, we had no awareness of the real situation. We purely and simply deserved everything that happened afterward. Wow. Yeah, it's just, it's, they just, it's, what are you supposed to do, man? It's just human nature. You just don't think it's going to happen to you. Absolutely, man. That's, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to try to read that book. That sounds pretty eye opening, definitely. Yeah. and, And like, to the, I mean, I think, to your point of people don't believe it's going to happen. I mean, on both sides, like we talked to people, I've talked to people in Ukraine that when everyone, when, when tensions were getting weird and things were kind of escalating, people started leaving because they expected this to happen. And then um, like this one kid I talked to, he was making fun of everyone for leaving. He's like, like, what are you guys doing? Like nothing's going to happen. You're all pussies. Mm -hmm. And then next day, like a missile flew over his house, you know, and like bombs started going off and he's like, Holy shit, this is happening. And so that's another reason a lot of people stayed because they truly didn't believe this would ever happen in this day and age. Because, like, I mean, if you follow, like, the invasion um, when it started, like, Russia's grounds for invading was just, like, preposterous, right? Like, they were saying, like, they would send a missile somewhere, you know, to, like, the DPR, like, separatist-controlled areas and say, oh, Ukraine attacked us. Now we can attack because we're defending ourselves. Like, it was just so bizarre and ridiculous and so it i really believe this was just a completely unprovoked invasion um like like yes like ukraine has blood on their hands because they do have corruption they don't always have the moral high ground but this wasn't cause for like an invasion of the whole country and just the thousands of people that have died and like the atrocities and war crimes committed against people that i've like personally talked to and seen the result of well let's talk a little bit about what you've seen um, I, I kind of want to talk about how you got there. So let's talk about traveling there and what it took for you to get there. It seems like it would be a difficult place to get to right now. Yeah, it was definitely complicated. So basically what happened was a friend and I started an organization um, that we can work under so we can kind of refer to the organ, like use the organization's credentials to get around so we don't have to kind of put our names behind it. But this organization um, is part of White House Correspondents Association. So we have like White House credentials and like U.S. press credentials. 
Um, my friend is, he's a kid I grew up with. We've been friends our whole lives. He has a background in, um, he was at, and for years. So he kind of has these wild ties to like political, military and intelligence community. So we're operating under this organization. We basically like went independent. We are working independently, although we're collaborating with um, different like military and political officials, but we're working independently. We went there, we went to Poland. We kind of just um, like I've been corresponding with my friends or um, network of people that are there that had been there, um, like frontline journalists, like correspondence um like ngo people aid people like i kind of just pulled from my network of resources to piece together how to even do it and how to get there so we flew to warsaw we spent a few days there we went to Krakow, um all the while like meeting these ngo people and like journalists and stuff kind of figuring out how to get in we took the train from the border of poland all the way to kiev and then from kiev we would work with fixers which are basically like um in the world of journalists is what you call someone that um like a local that you work with that whether they drive you around it's your tour guide <laughs> sure tour guide but like but it refers to like tour guides in conflict zones right yeah <laughs> so a lot of these fixers are badass they're like ukrainian journalists themselves maybe they're military guys like whatever so the what do these guys get paid how, do, how much do these guys make doing this so some of them make um like if they're working with bigger press people like you know some of the bigger organizations they're making a lot our fixer made 10 grand last month because he was working with um uh like journalists that had you know like a more resources at her disposal sure so he was working for them every day they make if maybe they you know it's all it's not like a you know um like actual job it's more so just a position that these people fill like this guy used to run yoga and like mountain retreat stuff now he's on the front lines helping journalists get around so like that's the type of people that are sometimes getting involved with this right so some he personally accepts donations so it's anywhere from like a hundred bucks to 500 bucks a day maybe if he's working with you the whole month you can agree upon like some sort of monthly rate you know, but like the reality is none of them are getting paid enough to um, risk their lives. Honest. Yeah. 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 It's it's not a matter of like they're doing this so they can make a ton of money. Um, obviously, they need to make money to support themselves in wartime. But it's more so like they believe in, in you know, helping however they can. And that's they're, why they're, they're part of the conduit of getting the news out. Absolutely. Yeah. And this guy, this guy's like pretty like Buddhist and kind of Zen sort of dude. So he had his risk assessment is higher than some other guys because he's like, oh, we're all going to die. Like, why worry? <laughs> you know, <laughs> so he's kind of that sort of he's kind of coming from that sort of perspective. But um, we've been going to a lot of areas that were uh, occupied outside of Kiev. And it's it's just astounding to see. I mean, I don't even know how to I don't even know where to start. Like. Everything like outside of like the Kiev outskirts um, where the oblast is what you call them, which is essentially like the county uh, has been cleaned up for the most part. So there's not any bodies necessarily like we saw some like rotting Russian corpses, but like everything's kind of everyone's been buried at this point. I mean, it's spring. It's warm. Like if you didn't if there was bodies laying around, it would be 
awful. Mm-hmm. So in the front lines, like there's bodies everywhere. Um, but in these occupied in these zones that were li- that are now liberated and were occupied, things have kind of been cleaned up. But it's just devastated. I mean, it's all just like it's just people's homes. I mean, there's it's like, of course, like the military targets were destroyed, but it's just like hearing the stories of these Russians coming into these cities and towns and just raping people, like gouging their eyes out for fun. Like we'd go to these areas where they were just like 30 people were stuffed into this tiny room in a basement for two weeks. People would die of pneumonia and like they it's just old people were dying. Like it was just wild, wild cases of crimes against humanity. And then in other areas, it's like, interesting, even, like when you think of the crimes against humanity that you think that that monsters are doing it. Right. You just think of the type of people that are doing it as monsters. And you think of, you know, the Nazis or the Russians or any other war crime stuff, Japan, whatever the case may be, America, whatever the case may be, it's in all of us. And I think that's important to remember is that evil is in everyone. It just depends on the circumstances, right? And so it's it's easy to pin these people as monsters, and they are. But they're also not that much different than you and I. They yeah. just come from a different place and a different mentality. And, you know, American soldiers have done some pretty bad shit, too. So it's yep. it's not just like Russian monsters. It's just like it's the it's the dirge of humanity. It's it's yeah. it's humanity laid bare in its most evil form. Yeah. And it's it's people that are a product of propaganda. That's like the astounding mm-hmm. thing. Like it's there's a lot of kind of conversations that have been um essentially like uh, intercepted by ukrainians and it's like russian mothers telling their kids to go rape the women they're like oh they don't matter they're just nazis like just wear condoms like you might have even seen that mm. but like all this stuff is on these ukrainian telegram channels and it's not coming from this like propaganda machine of western media or ukrainian media or russian media it's like it's coming from the people that are experiencing it and throwing it on their telegram channel you know what I mean? So that that's like the power of these alternative platforms that are really fascinating. But yeah, to your point, I mean, like in some of these areas, it was just like unbelievable, you know, war crimes. And then in the next town, that's like a five minute drive. Russian soldiers were handing out aid and like, you know, helping people with stuff like helping civilians and like um, essentially just like the complete opposite of what another battalion was doing a five minute drive away, you know, it's all about what what you're doing when someone's looking really. Yeah. And and also like people like don't realize how decentralized like a military force is. you know what I mean? It's not like everyone agrees to go like rape this town and like torture people and, you know, like rape boys. And like, there's girls like ages 10 to 12 when we were there that were getting still treated for vaginal tears you know it's just like unbelievable rapes but like a military force is so decentralized because there's all you have to understand that russia is a massive country and there's all these different people in the military that are coming from different er different areas of the country so some of these some of the worst crimes that were committed were from these ethnic group this ethnic group that's like basically mongolian ethnicity um and they're like a minority in russia like they've been essentially persecuted and like um looked down upon their whole existence so then it's it's like persecuted people persecute other people so like those that battalion was like incredibly um violent and like um just 
like evil, you know, and then other groups were just were helping people. So that's kind of it's that's kind of what's going on. But as time goes on and like more people get killed and lose their friends on both sides, they become more violent and hateful. So that's kind of what's happening now, I feel like, because that was that was in the first like two weeks of the invasion. Right. Was when these war crimes were committed because the areas that are occupied now, nobody knows what's going on. There's no service. No one can get in or out like it's you don't really figure out what's happening until these areas are liberated. So that's kind of like to paint a picture of like how it's been um, going down. What is it? What is it like to get to a place like that? Are you is it something that's just untouchable? uh, Like an area that's uh, um, currently occupied. occupied, Yeah. Like if you wanted to go out out east. Yeah. So we will be going to some of these frontline zones, like a huge part of what we've been doing is just building like this order of operations and this network and um, like collaborations with these different orgs or people. So we can go to these areas with, you know, better infrastructure. So when we go back, we'll be rolling with some escorts, with some military officials, and we'll be able to go wherever we want, uh, more or less. And um, like until now, it's it's just really expensive to get around when you're like we've been self-funding ourselves because we believe in this and we don't want to work for other news orgs or outlets because you're controlled by them then like the stories of the correspondents that are there right now and just getting controlled like the stories that they're putting out they're just getting told what to do and they have to do it so it's pretty interesting seeing that firsthand like some of these course like we've been meeting you know the like chief international correspondents of these major networks like Washington Post, like Wall Street Journal, New York Times. And they're just told what to do by their superiors and they can't do anything about it. They just they'll be like almost finished with the story, have all these sources, have everything, you know, have like kind of created this like list of sources in this network. And then they'll just get boosted to something else because it's not as relevant or like the org doesn't want to take that angle. So it's really wild. to. So I suppose they can't just contractually they can't just throw it on a sub stack and just have it be out there no they they have to do exactly what they're told it's pretty wild so we're just trying to avoid working with them and trying to raise funds like outside of the media world from wealthy benefactors that um can support us to do what we want and then we'll be collaborating with these orgs and like political groups uh i shouldn't say political groups maybe political officials and like military officials so all that to say that uh, we want to be like we can get to some front lines now. We well, could if, hold have, on. if someone wants to help you and donate some, is that do you have uh, something set up that people can do that? Yeah, we so we have um, like the organization. Uh, we have a bank account. We have wiring info. We have a PayPal. So any like both of us are many thousands, <laughs> thousands of dollars in the hole for this because we genuinely believe in it. And like, I mean, before I went there. We didn't know what was happening because you're hearing all this wild propaganda from every angle. Right. And so want to get the real story of what's happening and then build build a machine that's able to do that here and elsewhere in the world. So that's kind of the overarching theme here is to like build a network, build trust and um, um, build an ability to go into these places and actually see what's really happening and not be bought out by some political or media organization so where is the where does the money go so if i if i donate money and where will i see the fruits of 
what I what I'm giving you. Like, where is the reporting going? Where do the photos go? That kind of thing. So right now we haven't published too much because, like I said, we've kind of been working on this order of operations so we mm-hmm. can be there longer term and for the next few years, because I don't believe this war is going anywhere for at least two or three years. Right. Um, that's my belief. That's coming down from intelligence community, political people. So that's what I believe. So we want to work there off and on, you know, for years. And that's what we've been trying to work towards. So, I mean, if like funding that we would receive or that we receive is going to flights, it's going to transportation, it's going to um, just being it's going to our expenses and like operational cost being there so we can stay and then publish the work that we're doing um, through these different organizations and outlets. And we're trying to honestly work with conservatives and liberals because I think right now there's an incredible need for conservative outlets to talk about what's happening because, you know, mostly every conservative has been opposing the aid bill because the Democrats have been pushing it through. Mm-hmm. And Fox News has one correspondent in Ukraine and he's in Lviv, which is like the West against Poland. <laughs> yeah. And he's, you know, he gets, he puts his bulletproof vest on and, and his an helmet interview. and stuff in Lviv. Yeah, I've seen that guy. Same. Yeah. So like that guy's a joke. He's very handsome, <laughs> but he's a joke. And so we want. Well, like, he's just I think, he, honestly, he's just where they tell him to be. I'm sure he would probably rather yeah. for his career and his job and his interest be somewhere else. Well, I disagree because we've like met some people, like some of these chief correspondents, and they can't get any of their colleagues or associates to come to Kiev because mm. they're too scared. It's weird it's unbelievable and like there, yeah there's been some missile strikes in kiev but it's like a massive city and they're very you know few and far between Interesting. yeah it, it's bizarre so basically we want to work with these conservative outlets um we have we're building a network in contact with um fox we almost got an op-ed published with them but we'll be publishing some work and stories we're trying to work with politico um, we're trying to work with New York Times. I've been ta- we've been talking to all these people, um, to some of the editors and people there. So basically, like we want to publish the stories lo- like in the short term, so people can you know hear about and see what's happening from like a non-biased like political agenda, as well as like in the future in the long run, work on um, like uh, perhaps like a documentary that um, is kind of, I, I guess you know. Um, for lack of better words, we're working on a documentary that is showcasing some of the kids and like people our age that are involved with the war, like what their life was like before, what their life is like now to connect the people of Ukraine to the West, because so many people when they see this stuff happening on the news, I, I think there's like a psychological dynamic that happens where you associate this country as being more like impoverished or lesser than, you know, maybe that's just from like the Afghanistan wars and all these things. But I do think like there's this psychological dynamic that happens and we just want to debunk this theory that like these people um, are different than us. Right. And I think that's like one thing that we both feel strongly about. And so that's what we're working towards. We are working with like beginning to work with some of these higher level, like military and political officials in Ukraine and in the U S. So there's a lot, uh, developing and uh, like it's kind of starting to go 100 miles an hour so that's why we haven't really pushed fundraising yet because we want to have some more work to show for it um so we don't look like some well, you'll have to or- give me the you'll have to give me the link anyway and i'll put it in the show notes 
Um, I'll, I'll, I'll probably donate something. I think independent journalism is really, really important. Um, especially when I see the media today, which is, is, is a pathetic shell of, of an organization that really just doesn't do anything, um, as evidenced by what, by what you're telling me, uh, man, I, I hope I can talk to you again sometime. Uh, maybe when you get back, this has been an interesting turn seeing where you've interesting turn from our perspective because we you know see you as a mountain climber and explorer and now you're doing <laughs> this you're doing this different kind of exploring which i think is really noble and and i appreciate it and i hope to talk to you about it again sometime hey man it's been great to catch up and share some of this stuff thanks for hearing me kind of blab about it <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind okay. of a hard pill to swallow for a lot of the people that have been following what i've been doing but it is something that i've been really passionate about for you know a decade at least i just haven't really talked much or been vocal about it but as time goes on i think i'll um start gearing things that direction all right man well we look forward to you know seeing what you do and we'll follow you on social and we'll put everything in the show notes so people can follow along as well i appreciate it chris mr barkman thanks so much for hanging out with me today all right we'll talk to you later okay bye-bye now before we get too much further let's take a break here and talk about our sponsor olberg car care Olberg is your source of professional detailing compounds and supplies that is research tested and developed by professional detailers themselves. These are the guys that are actually passionate about detailing and know firsthand what makes a good product. And they truly are great products. I love it's a simple foolproof two-step system, easy and gives an amazing finish. And right now they're offering a whopping 20% off your order when you use the code OVERCREST. The discount code is good not only on OBERCCARCARE.com, but also on DetailedImage.com and CarSuppliesWarehouse.com. Please go check them out today. All right, guys, I put the link in the show notes. Make sure you check that out. If you believe in independent journalism, you like James Barkman and what he's trying to do over there, you're welcome to donate. Send him some cash. I know that I'm going to. Uh, Thanks for listening, guys. I think Jake is gone next week as well, but we should have a Patreon exclusive coming up for anybody that's in the Drivers Club. So if you're not in the Drivers Club, overcrestproductions.com slash Drivers Club, we're going to talk about Jake's projects, my projects, and everything else that honestly pales in comparison to what we just talked about. But uh, we still uh, want to talk about some fun stuff as well. I will see you guys next week with my interview with Nevin Pontius, who was... Uh, he's he's a friend of mine now. He came on the Overcrest Rally. He was once the art director of Deus Ex Machina, the motorcycle brand. Now he works with Matt Crook, and and uh, he, he worked with Pat Long on the on Luftkult. Really, really accomplished guy. Very humble. Was a lot of great stories to tell. We have a really long episode that we're gonna we're gonna release there, talking about his history and how he get got from where he was at a dairy farm in Wisconsin to being where he is today. It's a really really interesting story. And of course, we talk about the Overcrest Rally a lot as well. All right, we will see you guys. Bye.